Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is mile marker 116, and uh, man, I've spent the last few days feeling bad as badooty. Um, yeah, I've just been really under the weather. Uh, yesterday was beautiful. We've had some recent snow, and uh, yesterday was one of those like just epiphany, sunshine, warm, beautiful days. And uh, today it's 20 degrees colder, so we're back to cloudy and cold. Um, and I know speaking for myself, man, I got to say that like this time of year is the hardest time of year. January, that that crux going from January into February, it just kind of, uh, it really challenges me. Um, but that's me. And I'm Gumby, by the way. And uh, this is <laughs> Teresa. So, Teresa, how are you doing? Oh, well, I am. Uh, wow. Yesterday, I took apart our futon mattress. And when I say take apart, I tore up all of the stuffing inside of it to make it fluffier. And that took approximately five hours. And I have um, been diagnosed in the past by like specialists, doctors and science peoples with uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. So the repetitive motion of tearing apart uh, the basically shredded clothing from God only knows where. It was like belly button lint, dryer lint, and vacuum cleaner bag stuff is what it basically looked like. Well, I must not be like uh, wired for carpal tunnel syndrome because if repetitive motion was going to give it to me, my <laughs> right wrist would be torn up. Well, I couldn't sleep all last night because it felt like a fiery poison going through my forearms and into the palms of my hands. It was... Um, I imagine what people that go through stigmata must feel like. It was bad. So I didn't get much sleep last night. And uh, otherwise, yeah, just falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually heard that people that experience stigmata, it's like a uh, um, euphoria. Oh, okay. Then never mind. It was the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was not a visit by Jesus. Yeah. So, um being a mile marker and checking in about, you know, our different experiences and thoughts throughout the week. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, share off the top of your head, Teresa, to uh, start us off? Any topics to uh, get us rolling here? A practical thingy that happened also this past week was um, we had put up, or Gumby had constructed a dog tent with our poles that we um, harvested, <laughs> that we cut down to make the teepee. Um, so he just like transformed it into a tent and I had purchased this black kind of Rubbermaid container, pretty, pretty big one, um, for about $16 at Home Depot a while ago. My intent was to use it in the Hobo Wigwam to, um, to bathe in because I thought our, our shelter could be heated with a fire or something and, uh, and then the hot water 
from the fire could be mixed with cold, put into the plastic Rubbermaid container, and I could sit my ass in there and take a nice hot bath. But what it turned into was I didn't have to heat up the dog tent really at all. It was just warm from the sun, and the water was so hot I had to keep adding ice cold water to it, and it was phenomenal. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, and just the feeling of like, I used a little bit of this soap called black soap, um, that my friend had given me and Gumby, you said like, wow, what's that smell? It smells like roses or something. I didn't stink for like the first time in a long time. And, uh, so that just reminded me of the power of aromatherapy, you know, not just like smelling like smoke or dog stank or B.O. stank. It really can lift your spirits. So if you're feeling kind of down and you have the ability to uh, clean yourself up, I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that day, that was the day before yesterday, right? What? That I took a bath? Yeah. I don't know. It seemed like a couple days ago. Yeah. I remember that at the end of that day, we got into a huge fight, a big argument. And, uh, man, we were just like, it was one of those arguments where, like, y- y- you finally, after you say all this, like, angry stuff, you're like, all right, we cannot talk. We cannot communicate. <laughs> there is no venue. Anything I say is not going to, like, express what I'm trying to say. They're not going to be able to hear it anyway. So we just kind of sunk into a sullen silence. And uh, Teresa said later when we talked about it more that, like, you said you were more sad. I was definitely more angry. Yeah, I wasn't sad so much as I, um, well, shall we share our dirty laundry or? I mean, uh, whatever you want to share. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you mean by dirty laundry. So. I've, I've said this before on the podcast. I don't prioritize the same as Gumby. And so the fight was basically about, um, he had cut down the majority of the trees of the saplings and he was very concerned that I wasn't going to take the bark off. And so the, the poles were going to warp and they were going to be cut down for, you know, for nothing except maybe firewood in the future. So I told him like, you know, I really wanted to take a bath that day. And, um, and I was planning on working on the poles the next day, but, um, you had some insights into what was going on. So I don't know if you want to share that now or... Well, I'll share my insights, but yeah. go ahead and finish yours if there's uh, anything you wanted to share on the topic. I mean, I guess it's just, it goes to show you that after um, five years now of being together, like, there are just some things that fundamentally, like, we're just not going to see eye to eye. And then it just depends on, like, what type of person you want to be. Do you want to hold on to resentment? Because that's really hard to do when you live together in a minivan. Um do you want to just throw in the towel, call it quits, say, fuck you, take all your stuff and like go get a job and an apartment or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. Um, or do you want to look at yourself and be like, well, you know, he has a point. Um, but I also like, I felt so good after the bath. It was almost like, it wasn't that what you were saying didn't touch me Gumby, because I did also feel Like, I don't want to neglect these living things that we cut down, the trees. But, um, but I knew I was going to get on it the next day. So, so my mantra has been shelter, 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 shelter. 
take care of those things, prioritize. So we've been eating a lot of instant oatmeal and soup. Yeah, Teresa and I, we uh, do not have a history of organizing well together, though we each believe individually that we are both fairly good organizers on our own. Now, whether we look like good organizers on our own from anybody on the outside, who knows? But uh, we fall into kind of, you know, like Teresa does this kind of work. I do this kind of work, you know, just naturally things get divided up. And We for gender the, ourselves. Well, I don't, <laughs> I know you're joking, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true because not all the work falls into the typical gender roles. Um, but yeah, I guess a lot of it does. You tend to do most of the cooking and food and I do things like maintain the fire and stuff like that. Um, but this argument, as in as many of our arguments, revolved around um, a clash between what we thought the other one should be in charge of, which then snowballs into things that we usually do that aren't a big deal, but then within the context of the argument become a big deal. It's called a kitchen sink arguing. What's that? Like you throw everything into the argument including the kitchen sink. Yeah, which is really a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing to do. I've read and also I've, you know, seen myself because then, of course, that one thing that you could possibly work out, now you, you're talking about 10 other things and the time it would take to just get to the bottom of one of them. And most of the time, those 10 other things are things that have come up again and again for the whole time you've known the person. So you already feel just completely like, well, shit. We haven't figured that out yet, so I'm not going to figure it out now, and I'd have to do so much talking to even get back to the topic that we started out with, and that's when the communication breaks down. But uh, as I'm sitting there simmering, you know, these poles are sitting there, and one of the, the points is, for me, is like, I want to honor these trees. I don't like killing things. I don't like killing anything. So when I cut down trees like I did for the teepee, um, I feel bad, but so I really want it to be for a purpose. The last thing, the cardinal sin for me would be that I caused harm to another living being for nothing and then just neglected it. So um, Teresa had this project to work on the teepee. She had cut down three trees. She was going at her own pace. Snow's coming. We decide, okay, now we have a common interest to get something up. And since you're already working on a teepee, let's make it the teepee. Let's throw our energy into that. So I busted ass, got the other poles, you know, uh, really worked hard, um, both of us, to get that teepee up. And now that the snow has passed, you know, it's like now we've got these 15 poles that need to be debarked. I thought that was Teresa's job. From my perspective, it was like, okay, I gave you a big head start. You were wanting to do this anyway. And now, like, you don't have to cut down the other trees and everything. But you do have to process, at the very least, these trees as soon as possible. Teresa was prioritizing things differently, thought that could wait, and she was going to do something else. And, uh, I mean, I can see now, after the, the argument, that we both had a point. There was probably no big five-alarm emergency to take the bark off right at that moment. Um, but it did need to be done, and if we don't prioritize it, it could keep waiting and waiting until they do go bad. But I had this epiphany of, it reminded me of something I'd, I'd learned before, that my competition isn't with another person. You know, that was the source of my anger. It wasn't that I was competing to be better than Teresa. It was I was I was competing that my view was more right than hers. And so I'm sitting around the fire. We're not talking. And, I'm, you know, those trees are sitting there. And I just have this, like, liberating feeling wash over me of, like, actually, a lot of this is between me and those trees. If the trees need to be debarked, why don't I set what I think I need to do, change my priorities, and pick one up and start debarking it? And as soon as I did that, man, it was like... 
I felt a whole lot better. And then as we're laying in the van, still kind of, you know, mad from the, the argument. Um, and by the way, arguing with somebody you live in a van with, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I mean, it's like everything that people can go through is on steroids. When you're in a van, it's cold. It's not even like you really can feel like you can take a long walk. I mean, you want the van for shelter. It's a cold night. So, <laughs> oh, that's awkward. But I'm laying there and a, a couple of uh, quotes come to me that I felt like were really powerful. One was from Martin Luther King Jr., um, Dr. King, and uh, which was timely since we just had MLK Day, which, uh, you know, a lot of people, well, I don't want to go off on that tangent right now, but uh, he's got this really great, great quote that he says, hate is too great a burden to bear. And that's what I felt. I felt that, you know, I didn't hate Teresa, but the anger, anger is a close cousin of hate, I feel like. It was a burden. It was just weighing me down. And I'm like, can I choose something else? Can I just fucking like let this go? And uh, it was wonderful to discover that for the most part, it's not like it all just went away and these problems aren't going to resurface and everything's fixed. But the bulk of that anger, I could. I could just let it go. And uh, man, that was like further liberation. It was... I was getting so much good from this bad event. The argument was bad. I didn't like the things we said to each other. I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't like anything about it in the heat of the moment. But because of that powerful emotional experience, I was getting all these insights. (laughs) And I just, that was strange. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Namaste. Yeah. What was the the other um, quote that came to mind? Well, there was that one by Martin Luther King, and then I thought of another quote by Buddha. So Martin Luther King is talking about the burden, the weight of hate, and he was thinking of, you know, the establishment, and uh, as the liberals are quick to, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say, Um, say that it was against white people. I don't think it was necessarily just against white people, Um, and it depends on what point in Martin Luther King's life you focus on, whether he seemed to be anti-white or whether he was more inclusive bringing people together. But anyway, he was pointing out whatever group that he was felt pitted against, it was too great a burden uh, to, to bear to, to have this hate for them. It was just, it didn't do him any good. And the Buddha further elaborated on that, or, you know, 2,000 years, 2,500 years before. Anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. I love how practical that is. It's just, you know, that it's ineffective. All right, you're angry. Maybe you feel like you're completely justified. Maybe the other person is a fucking asshole. And you are, in fact, completely justified. Everything you said is true. And they are blatantly lying. They're blatantly just not being a good person. Still, to be angry with them, it doesn't hurt them. You feel like you're punishing them, but really it's eating you up inside. So... That was another thing that crossed my mind that night in the van and that further like, man, why don't I just, you know, let this go? And, you know, Teresa and I weren't talking to each other. So I was like, hey, let's play Crazy Eights. We got some uh, time to kill, you know, so. And what's so weird is when we were sitting around the fire not talking, I was just like online looking at stuff that uh, we had decided that we might want to use our points Um that we've accumulated by, you know, buying gas for the van, um, to purchase some things that we needed. And I had really kind of 
kind of just like pushed it out of my mind. Like I wasn't, I wasn't mad. I was, of course, like Gumby said, I was sad because I would rather us not be fighting. It's just easier that way for everybody. (laughs) But by the time we got in the van, I was just like, I don't know. I was just ready to go to sleep. Like I was really tired and just didn't really want to stir anything up. So I was just keeping quiet. And it can be easy to like to let too much anger. Well, here's the tricky part. If you just let the anger go, sometimes you don't address things. So the trick is the anger usually comes up because something needs to be addressed. There is, in fact, some problem, and your reaction to it was anger. The anger was ineffective, but the problem was real. So the trick is, are you addressing the thing? The problem. Or you just found a way to shuffle it off for the moment so you can just go through it all again. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about the wheel of samsara. Things happening over and over and over. Awakening is getting off the wheel of samsara. So, you know, that's the... The real honesty there is, can you make the changes? Like, even if you need to separate with somebody, you can do that without anger. I'm not going to say, like, being fake and, you know, acting like, oh, I, I feel I'm above it all. But you don't need to, like, resent people. You make the changes. You consider the changes. You do what needs to be done. Like, one of the things I realize I need to change is take more autonomy for myself. This whole... Teresa and I both have a big individualistic streak that makes it hard for both of us, I think, to get along with anybody. Um, we don't have a history, either one of us, of like really having tight people for very long. That's why we're out here, you know, pretty much just having each other. Um, so I think for me, what I'm realizing is I need to take more of my autonomy back. And I need to, it's not that Teresa took it from me, it's that I neglected it. Hmm. I let it slip. And I do feel better when I take more of that autonomy back, even if it means doing extra chores, where sometimes it feels like I'm doing more work than I feel like I should when two people are around. But instead of focusing on, on it that way, there's also an empowering aspect of that. I know where things are. I know where I put things. Hmm. I know how to do more things for myself. Things are being done the way I want them to be done. Um, so yeah, that's that's part of like, I don't know, more one of the vaguer lessons that I'm not quite sure what the uh, how to do that yet, but just a recognition. And I think that's what you're after when you go in the woods sometimes to like do stuff for yourself for a night. You know, have your solo is like you you're yeah. partly seeking some autonomy. You want to see yourself build a fire. Yeah, you want to see that... yourself like be able to create your own shelter and stuff like that. Yeah, that and just have the day my way. You know, like you said, we're both very individualist. I wasn't coming from a marriage before I met you, so I'm not really used to being with somebody else. I lived most of my adult life really by myself, and so I do things in a way that makes sense to me, and it might not make sense to somebody else. Oh, shoot, there was something I was going to say, though. I forgot. Well, keep thinking on it. I wanted to say that uh, since then, I've, for instance, been helping out um, debarking the poles. We've got most of them done now, and I felt good about it. Before that, before I uh, changed my way of thinking, it felt like I shouldn't have to do this. There are things I want to be working on. Mm. Um, But just looking at it differently, I don't feel like it's, uh, I don't know, invading my time to do other things. It feels like, "Eh, I help out a little bit, and then I do something else, and 
Yeah, it's just the power of perspective. Oh, I remembered what I wanted to say. Whenever um, I talk with my family members and they're like, how are you doing? You know, are you, you and Gumby happy? It's like, well, happy is an interesting word, isn't it? Mm. But um, I always reflect in that conversation with them on how much Gumby and I learn from each other. And it's not what you would maybe think like, oh, he teaches me, you know, survival skill stuff. It's more like, wow, he just brought something to the surface or I did for him that I maybe didn't want to look at, but here it is. And now what do I do with it? Do I just like push it down or do I address it? Um, you know, how do I learn to navigate this situation? Uh, letting go of some control aspects of things. So, yeah. Yeah, I've also been considering, speaking of the Buddha, the three gates of speech that I really could do a lot better in the way I talk. And the three gates of speech, they say, like, make sure before you say something that it passes through these three gates. And the three gates are questions, which you know I love. Um, The first one, is it true? So to the best of your ability, are you speaking a truth? The second gate is, um, is it kind? And uh, I struggle with this one because sometimes doesn't it seem like it's necessary to say unkind things, but that raises the question, is it necessary to say unkind things? And is it necessary actually is the third gate, is what you have to say necessary, Um, which is an invitation just to shut up. Maybe silence is preferable. And to me, that's the, the, the biggest gate, you know, maybe I've, I've, uh, suggested they're in the wrong order. Maybe the first one, the one that's kind of the best one is, is it necessary? Can you just be quiet right now? Um, and if you feel the need to talk, then ask yourself about the other two. Is it true? And is it kind? Um, for instance, you might need to say, feel like, well, I need to say this unkind thing because it is necessary. It's, uh, kind of tricky, but just to temper my speech more. And, uh, I'd like to invite more quiet into my life, which of course is tricky, you know, doing a podcast, um, getting on Facebook, mixing it up, you know, uh, I'm not saying this is something that's going to happen like quickly. And, uh, it's just kind of an idea I'm thinking about, especially the, is it necessary? There's so many times I think quiet is really nice. And if you're not in the habit of it, it's hard not to make quiet a sullen thing. Like for instance, when Teresa's suddenly quiet, um, Teresa talks quite a bit, but when she's quiet, it's often got a stigma of, uh, anger, grumpiness, a negative feeling. Um, whether that's always true or not, that's the way it feels because the habit is Teresa likes to talk. So there must be some mood that's preventing her from talking. And then maybe it's the same with me. I, I focus on Teresa in that aspect because, of course, I'm so busy being me. I, I don't have as much of a perspective on what I am like from the outside. Um, but yeah, I guess just normalizing more quiet, I think, would be nice. More time to hear the birds and the wind. Because the times that I do remember to be quiet, and I'm not just like trying to punish somebody else and show them like how mad I am or whatever, it often reveals beautiful things that I wasn't focused on, like the sounds of nature. And uh, it's one of the wonderful things about the way we live is being outside all the time. There's so many beautiful things around us. That's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, no. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. If we're done circle jerking. Uh, I know. Okay. Circle jerking. You got carpal tunnel. Push through it. Thank you. Mm. All right. Happy ending. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, damn, you're dirty. Oh, speaking of dirty, Teresa was uh, skinning those poles the other day. And, oh, my uh, God. <laughs> she's got this shirt that is, like, <laughs> barely there. It's this tank top. It is nothing but a booby shirt. Now, it is threadbare, and it is, like, it's the kind of shirt you wear when you, like, like you don't care if anybody sees your boobies. <laughs> but you also want to be able to say, like, um, you know, I'm wearing a shirt. I'm not topless. No, you're not topless, but... Uh, I might as well be. You might as well be. You would turn every head in a parking lot if you wore that shirt. I'll tell you that. Teresa's got some fantastic boobies. Oh, my God. Um, to her credit. Um, but my goodness, yeah. So, <laughs> I was... Uh, it's funny because the wet t-shirt contest, you know, people throw wet like water on wet t-shirts to turn them into booby t-shirts. And uh, I was just expressing appreciation for that um, t-shirt. Is there anything you want to say about your booby shirt? It's so comfortable. I hate to give it up, but I recognize that it is threadbare. So, yeah, I don't know. I made a close-up of it, like the screenshot on my iPad. Oh, my God. And uh, speaking of clothing, another uh, article of clothing I was having a lot of appreciation for on my end is this King of the Mountain shirt or jacket. I don't know. It's something in between, but I spent 250 bucks on that thing a while back. And uh, I got it at a discount price. Apparently, Teresa was, like, looking into it because I've been bragging on it for all this time. And uh, it goes, like, at brand new around $800. Yeah. But now this is one of those rare times I almost never suggest anybody spend money on anything if you can help it, much less a ridiculously expensive thing. But I've had this thing, oh, my God, I don't know, maybe about 20 years now. I might be exaggerating. I tend to do that. I'm a guy. Um but I've been around, I've worn that thing around every campfire I've been around, basically, because anytime it's cold, that's the thing I put on because it's so warm. And I've had holes get burnt in all my clothes. They fall apart, they get burnt. This has almost no burn holes in it, like one little burn hole on a part of the uh, the collar that's not part of the wool. Um, it keeps me warm in the, the rain, and it's it just holds up. It's so tough. It is a remarkable thing. So if you're in the habit of you still spend money on stuff and you want a really good investment, like clothes that may last you the rest of your life, will keep you warm, will keep you dry, king of the mountain wool. Holy crap. And we're not getting paid for any of this sponsorship here. No, I wish we were. Yeah. Because I, I might do a commercial for king of the mountain. <laughs> I feel like I could authentically feel good about that because this thing has... I mean, I got it used, and uh, it has just held up for the through the test of time. I've never seen stitching or fabric like this that's just so tough. And, and even the camouflage it. is, like, really effective. It's not that kind of blocky, sharp edges camouflage. Mm -hmm. The wool just kind of blends it in, so it's really effective camouflage. Remember when I was peeing next to that tree that day? I did were. Yeah. I didn't even see you. Yeah, you didn't even know I was peeing next to that no, tree. I thought it, that tree was just well hung. Yeah. Now look at the <laughs> cock on that tree. Oh, there's Gumby. Oh, wow. I thought that was the trunk. <laughs> but anyway, boobies and tree cocks. Um, and kitties. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, is there anything else that you would like to uh, talk about regarding any of uh, that stuff or anything related? Uh, speaking of being naked and not having any clothes on, we finished the uh, the seasons of Alone that are available, Alone the Survival Show. And just because it came up on like survival shows that that are interesting, 
we decided to watch Naked and Marooned with Ed Stafford. And this is like almost a decade old, but it was really cool. Like he uh, was dropped off on a basically a deserted island and uh, and he had the goal of making it for 60 days, six zero. And he did. And he was actually doing pretty well. So um, if you're out there and you haven't watched it yet, um, I got a free trial through Amazon. So we're watching it for free for the next couple of days. Well, actually, we finished because it was only a couple episodes. They were interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. <clears throat> Another, speaking of things we've watched, we watched a movie that uh, I saw a clip on Facebook, and the clip was really interesting. So Teresa decided to order from the library this movie, and uh, luckily they had it. And, and it is a 1981 movie called My Dinner with Andre. And my God, it's such a good movie. Yeah. Um, it is definitely in my top ten movies I've ever seen, which is saying something for me because I love movies. I've watched a lot of movies. Um. And it's just one kind of brief scene with the uh, actor that if you've watched The Princess Bride, he's the little bald guy that uh, was like the genius that would say, inconceivable. And it's that guy. And he's just walking down the road and you're kind of hearing his reflections as he narrates and he walks into a restaurant. And then the entire movie is him at a dinner table with this other actor or director or something. They actually play themselves in the movie. Um, their conversation. And my God, the things they talk about. Um, they covered so much of the stuff that we talk about. They talked about questioning science, um, what the, the implications of technology. Like they talked about having an electric blanket. And uh, Andre was <laughs> saying like, I will never get under an electric blanket. Um, I don't trust technology for one thing. I might get electrocuted. And for the other thing, Look at what it does to us to be under, like, every time we have this technology come into our lives. Um, Like, for instance, when it's cold, what does it do to us to be cold, to know it's cold, to snuggle up to the person next to us, to feel the connection of, like, wow, it's cold outside. People are cold. The animals are cold. It's cold. But when the technology, every bit of technology we welcome in that, like, blocks us from the reality of what's happening... um, removes us from that connection. Just things like that. I mean, just almost, it was so cool to watch this movie. He'd go on off on some crazy stuff that I'm like, I almost started to zone out. It's like, wow, that's crazy. And then he'd say something so deep that I'd be like, whoa, wait, what, what did he just say? <laughs> I mean, we were just getting our minds blown by this movie. Yeah. And the, um, the character Andre does the majority of the talking in case you were like, oh my God, I don't want to hear that. Like, ball guy's voice the whole time. He was pretty obnoxious. I think he also played like the head Ferengi in Star Trek <laughs> The Next Generation. But if you can if you can just get past the um the idea or the the premise of it being like two white guys in the eighties talking in a restaurant, the conversation itself is what is so amazing. And I found it on YouTube. I posted a link on Escaping Society Facebook page. You can find it yourself. My Dinner with Andre from 1981. And yeah, one of the things that stood out in the movie to me also was when Andre was talking about this experience that he was, he led different exercises uh, 
for people throughout the world. I, I don't know, like he just went traveling and, and met these different people and just had some crazy wild experiences. And one of them, he was um, basically buried alive. Do you remember that? Do you remember him talking about oh, how yeah. they did this? Oh, yeah, I think this, that was like, a Halloween ceremony yeah, or it something. Was, it was some sort of crazy, uh, felt like a, a an actual kind of pagan ritual, but he was lowered down into this grave, and they started to pile dirt on him, and he's describing all of what's going on. Like, I mean, imagine if that was happening to you. Obviously, there would be panic, but you're hoping, like, did I, am I, trusting of these people? Should I be fighting or should I be letting all of these feelings in and these emotions out? And it just, it was, it was really deep and I highly recommend the movie. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, was in the movie that really struck me was, um, he kept talking about how, like, it's so easy to sink back into the dream and like not live your life. And, um, one of the things he was talking about in that vein was routine, how, when we get in this routine of just doing what we've always done, are we really alive? You know, we just go on autopilot. We stop really being present to our lives. And uh, I've been tossing that idea around in my head um, over the past few days because we have so many routines. Yeah. And the routines help us, you know, like it helps to know exactly what we're doing next. Like I wake up in the morning, I know coffee, coffee, Walk Sherlock, feed Sherlock, some exercises, uh, meditate soon, maybe consider breakfast, break up firewood. You know, we have things that basically happen every morning. And I recognize the truth of what he says, that like the routine is really hard to uh, stay awake to because it's so it's it's easier to go on autopilot. So it's interesting to to recognize that that's a dance. Am I sacrificing the vivid reality of my life for the routine? Could I live a life with no routine? He talked about this one guy that would, uh, every now and then on a spontaneous day, he's right-handed, would do everything with his left hand. And, <laughs> I uh, tried that when I was removing the bark from one of the trees. Yeah, pretty effectively. Yeah. I think. I was busy looking at the booby shirt. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And... Oh, why did I bring up the booby shirt? What was I talking oh about? Oh my gosh. Well, you were basically talking about stalking yourself, like doing things to get you out of a routine. Yeah. Like when you read Carlos Castaneda nipples, you uh, will see, <laughs> like, he talks about stalking yourself. And basically he's talking about, like, confronting the routine. Stalking yourself is doing things completely out of character, uh, completely crazy, things you wouldn't usually do for that reason to kind of wake you up. To reveal things about yourself. Yeah. And so that's just, I don't know, it's been an interesting idea because like I said, my routines, I've got them whittled down pretty well. I'll, most of my routines, if not all of them, accomplish things that I want accomplished. But is there a way to stay awake within the routine? Maybe to stalk myself within the routine. Maybe take Sherlock on that morning walk, but do something... Like walk backwards or walk something. backwards or something. Yeah. Even something just crazy nonsensical that... Uh, blindfold yourself and walk. Ooh, now you're getting into, like, Tom Brown tracker stuff. He always, he recommends, like, blindfolding yourself to do any skill, um, even whittling. <laughs> yeah, and we were talking after that movie about how our routines and um, even the things that we say, we can hypnotize ourselves. And we got into a lot of deep discussions around um, self-hypnosis or even, you know, Gumby and I spend 
all the time together and how we are casting spells on each other, whether it's by using careless words or just by, you know, like you sank into a routine of doing X and I sank into my routine of doing Y and we're like constructing our own perspectives about our shared life. You know what I mean? Like it's, um, I don't know, like it it doesn't have to be something that's necessarily bad and it's not necessarily something that you even mean to do. I'm not even sure it's an issue of bad and good because those words are tricky. I try to stay away from them when I can because, you know, I mean, the next question always has to be, if you want to have a real conversation, what do you mean by bad? Like you really have to define that to to have those words have any meaning. Um, Good for who? Good for what? What's your goal? Um, What's good for a longer life might not be good for a better life, for instance. But yeah, we were really noticing how much overlap there was between what we've learned about hypnosis, mass hypnosis, that kind of stuff, and the sorcerer's world, particularly Toltec, uh, Carlos Castaneda, Don Ruiz, what's his name? Don Miguel Ruiz. Don Miguel Ruiz, the Four Agreements um, of that nature. And uh, that hypnosis, you know, that that routine, that habit, um, being in the dream, because when you think about it, the suggestions there, you know, whatever idea you're carrying, the repetition is definitely there. That's what the routine is. It's repetition. And um, hmm, I don't know. I haven't thought about how emotion might fit in there. But uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. And um, they, they specifically talk about how words cast spells. Mm-hmm. You know, again, back to the power, like the Buddha said, three gates of speech. And another cool thing about Buddhism is when you get into the Eightfold Path, which is basically the practices that will help you awaken, there's a part of it that's under like sila, which is ethics, morality, ways to act. Um, it's not that they're intrinsically good, like God just says, oh, you're a good boy and pats you on the head. Mm-hmm. It's that it's good in the sense that it creates good karma. You're planting good seeds that will create good fruit, which will lead to a better life, which will be a better opportunity for you to awaken and develop yourself. So it's a really pragmatic approach, but there's only one action that's labeled twice. And that's speech. Speech is the only one. Hmm. Stealing is labeled once. Uh, Irresponsible sex, um, intoxication, things like that, uh, right livelihood. But under the five precepts, you see right speech. And uh, there in the Eightfold Path, you see right speech. So there's a lot of importance placed on that. And then this uh, Toltec wisdom says that we are all sorcerers, and the way we cast spells is with our speech. Mm -hmm. That we are creating the world with our speech. One of the examples I liked is, uh, let's say, I want to insult Teresa. And this is why his book is called The Four Agreements. There needs to be an agreement for me to have power. So if I call Teresa stupid, there's got to be a part of her that agrees for it to have power, Mm -hmm. in which case I have caused her actual injury. She carries that around with her. It's changed her life. It's a powerful thing. I cast a spell. But if there's no part of her that agrees, let's say I call her, you know, a plum. (laughs) And she's just like, that was stupid. I'm not a plum. No power. You know, if it has stigma in our culture that like you called somebody that was stupid a plum, that would have power. But without the stigma, without the agreement, no power. So I can clearly see how words cast spells. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Did I go off on a tangent? Did you have more to say on that? No, I really liked what you were saying. And uh, I was also thinking about our conversation where we were, again, you know, with with the idea of hypnosis and casting spells not being so available. Don't be too available. And Don Juan was talking to Carlos in one of the books about this. And you've mentioned it. You've brought it up on podcasts before. But I was thinking in the context of mainstream media. What if you are constantly inundated with mainstream media? You're making yourself available. So you're already, like, you're agreeing not necessarily to the message yet, but you're agreeing that this entity, whether it's a news story on the internet or a YouTube video or the news on a TV, like this is something that's important to you. Yeah. He says a warrior touches things sparingly. I remember when he was explaining that. So to be as light, including your interactions with people, like interact with them sparingly, talk to them sparingly. Um, Don't wear them out. You know, basically, like, they also talk about hooking your attention. And I thought this was interesting in the the terms of thinking of it like hypnosis. Um, That people, you got to be careful that people will not hook your attention, which means they basically grab your attention and pull it into their reality. And now you have to, like, talk, think, and live in their terms. We, We do that to each other. So to be a warrior and touch people sparingly, for one thing, is to try not to hook other people's reality. So it's like a courtesy. People don't realize they're doing this, but it's the way we've been taught to be. Mm-hmm. But a warrior remembers, I need to do everything sparingly. The effect of that, one of the effects, is I'm not going to hook your attention. The other effect is because I'm around you sparingly, you're not going to hook my attention. I'm going to connect to something deeper than just somebody's one viewpoint of reality which is what we all kind of do, the way we talk, you know, casting these spells. It's like, look at the world my way. Look at the way, look at what I see. Hey, did you hear that? I heard that. I want you to hear that. You know, it's just hooking your attention. And if you're around that all the time, you never get to see what you might have heard, what the earth had for you. Mm -hmm. The earth had a song it wanted to share with you. It had something that you needed to look at that would have meant something to you. But if somebody's just hooking your attention all the time, they drain you. And they don't even mean to do it. We've all been like, taught to think there's no such thing as magic. And the effect of that is not that we don't have magic, it's that we worked black magic carelessly because we don't know how to use our magic responsibly. The magic doesn't go away. It's what we are. And if you're kind of getting lost on the um, Don Juan uh, interpretations by Carlos Castaneda, think about even in our own language, you're paying attention. Like this is something that you are giving. Oh yeah, I liked it when you... uh... Had that epiphany of that saying, because it is so telling. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And like you're giving it to attention seekers or attention grabbers who might even steal your attention if you don't necessarily want to give it up. I mean, there must be value to it. And a drill sergeant who wants you to be completely under his spell, his will will say, attention. (laughs) Good one. Yeah. I mean, you can really see. I, I don't think it's just like, I mean... Uh, just a funny coincidence? I think it is telling. I think we almost can't help but the truth bust out in little cracks in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And if you listen carefully, you can still see the truth just like vomiting out here and there, hemorrhaging. Um, 
And I'm glad we're revisiting Castaneda because there was when we did Stopping the World, I was sharing all my favorite quotes and there was one I forgot. And I'm like, damn, that's a good one. So I'm going to stick it in awkwardly here. I've said that before. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Anyway. Oh, and I I want you to listen carefully to this, Teresa, because I want to hear what you think about this. I know you've heard it before, but hear it fresh. Only if one loves this earth with unbending passion can one relieve one's sadness, Don Juan said. Warriors are always joyful because their love is unalterable, and their beloved... And their beloved, the earth, embraces them and bestows upon them inconceivable gifts. Wow. The sadness belongs only to those who hate the very thing that gives shelter to their beings. Don Juan again caressed the ground with tenderness. This lovely being, which is alive to its last recesses and understands every feeling, soothed me. It cured me of my pains, and finally, when I had fully understood my love for it, it taught me freedom. Wow. There's so many parts I love about it, and um, the first one is one of the last things he... Well, he does. He doesn't say it, but he caresses mm-hmm. the earth. Do you know that when you see statues of Siddhartha, um, one of the most common poses is he'll have a mudra, a hand mm-hmm. gesture with one hand, and the other hand is touching the earth? Yeah. He's caressing the earth? Yeah. It's from when Mara challenged him and uh, said, who are you to awaken? You, you're prince. You know, I've seen every wrong thing you've done and tried to like stop him with doubt. It was the last challenge. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha touched and caressed the earth again. This yeah. earth had taken care of him and the earth had seen every life. Yeah. It had been there for everything. It was the one truest witness. And all the trees burst into bloom when he touched the earth as proof like that the earth bears witness like that's a lie. You put in the work. Wow. Mara's lying to you. And how beautiful of Don Juan to also say that if you love this being, this lovely being that has given you so much, has given you your life, it will give you your freedom. Yeah. I just, I really love that. Is it that simple? And of course, it's, it grows more and more difficult as you become less and less attached to the land, to your habitat. Yeah. Here's a thought I've got it, and I'm just running with this, is I think it, it both is and isn't that simple. Because mm-hmm. it's through love of the earth that everything opens up, but then, like, I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, things that go with that. There's a lot of different ways that love needs to look. Mm. For instance, you know, we've been toying, or I've been toying mainly with this idea of uh, rewilding. And, you know, I've been thinking there's three aspects to it. One is uh, being outside, so that's one form of love for the earth. I want to be around you all the time. I want to, like, remember I'm part of you. I want to, like, explore this world. I love this world. The next is contemplation, introspection. I think that's another way of, like, seeing your connection with everything. Like, when you look inside and realize that, like, there's nothing there. You are the trees in the sky, you know, when you look deep enough. And then the skills, you know, how do I relate to this earth? I've got to take something. Other people are killing parts of this earth so I can live this way. Um, I want it directly in my hands. It's my relationship. And so when I need to take something, it's up to me to figure out how to do it the best I can. So I think that's where it's kind of like complex mm-hmm. and simple. Well, 
<laughs> it's complex. It's complex. Man. That was Keanu Reeves, by the way. Yeah, that was a good one, though. I think. And and when it comes to, we were, um, in one of our last episodes, we were talking about The Stranger in the Woods, the story of the North Pond Hermit, Christopher Knight. Yeah. And how, like, why do some people pursue this wild life or rewilding life, even against discomfort, danger, etc.? Like, what what is it that these people experience that makes it worthwhile as they're reconnecting with the earth? Hmm. Or, I mean, or are they? Because I think um, we had some people written down as examples. Christopher McCandless. Of course, Christopher Knight, the North Pond Hermit, Peace Pilgrim, that we have an episode on. Um, Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> Uncle Ted. Even here's an example I don't think we've ever even said between us just talking. Timothy Treadwell. Yeah. There are people that, no matter what you think about aspects of their life, they all have this unique choice they made that they would give their life for whatever they've experienced out there. And on one hand, it always looks like poverty. It looks like you're doing without discomfort, hardship. But there's something out there that these people touch that is so right that it's worth the cost. These people know what the cost is. I mean, their life? Yeah, their it's... life. These are all people like Peace Pilgrim. Yeah. She gave her life. There was no guarantee how that walk was going to go. A woman walking by herself mm-hmm. for all that time. She knew sooner or later her life was the, the price. Yeah. It's her, you know, this this cost. And, uh, yeah. And or I feel like we... prison for the rest of your life, too. I feel like they've... I feel like these people have gone deeper into it than we have. But I feel like anybody that starts moving in that direction, you're catching a little hint of that. At least you've tasted it brush across your lips. You know there's something out there, and you know that it's the best thing. It's the most right. Yeah, I hate to even say best thing because it's like, ooh, that's like, I don't know. It's not like that. It's right. It fits. It's like in a world. In a world gone mad, (laughs) you find the thing that fits. There was somebody that we were listening to the other night on a podcast, and they said they never use the word environment anymore. They use the word habitat. And I really liked that because it reminds us and rewilds us to our place. We're not separate from this. We think a lot of time that we're separate from our habitat because we are animals, because the separation comes in because of our mind. Yeah. And actually, I came across a uh, new example of somebody else that had made this choice. Um, her name is Annie Wilkins. Come on down. Annie Wilkins, come on down. <laughs> um, God, I would, wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Like, yeah. what's. Come on down. All right. Is Annie Wilkins. Famous, you mean? Yeah, like, like actually being on the show, like that's your job. Oh, oh, oh. Teresa Ferlotti, yeah. come on down. Exactly. Well, now the more I do it, the less I like it. I don't want to, I don't want that job. Okay. All right, Annie Wilkins. In 1954, she lived in Maine and she had a farm. Um, I can't remember if she was married or not, but she was doing pretty well and then everything fell apart. The doctor said she had two years to live. She lost the farm. She lost um, almost all of her money. So, And they wanted to put her in, like, some kind of home, 
You know, basically, you can stay here for these remaining two years of your life. Mm. Instead, Annie Wilkins used what little money she had to get an ex-racehorse named Tarzan. She had a dog named Depeche Toy, of all things. I'd like to know. Depeche Toy? Depeche Toy? I wonder Uh, what that is. I don't know. And um, from 1954 to 1956, she decided, I've never seen the Pacific Ocean, and I want to. So from Maine, she rode that horse with that dog over 4,000 miles. Wow. She met famous people like Groucho Marx. Uh, She went right through the middle of cities, but everybody was really neighborly to her. And what they say about Annie Wilkins is that at a time when people were, uh, you know, getting more into television, um, this fast food culture, when it was starting to not be such a neighborly place, it wasn't the good old days anymore. People weren't getting together on their porches as much anymore. They were staying inside and watching TV. She was kind of this reminder of like how to be neighborly. People just related to her. She was friendly. She she brought out the friendliness of people everywhere she went. But think about that she must have touched that too. Yeah. She didn't want to. Like she knew even if it kills me, I'm going to die anyway. And I don't want to be in this home. I want to be out there. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, it's discomfort. It's not your favorite foods. It's like challenging and everything. But she touched that thing where the cost is worth it. Do you remember uh, when she finally died? Was it like after the two years they gave her? I think the brief article I read on her did not talk about how she died. Oh. So, I, yeah, I just wondered that myself as I was explaining the story. It's like, I don't know if she made it to the Pacific Ocean. Oh, man. How wide is the country? Is it over 4,000 miles wide? Well, it's about 3,000 from North Carolina to California. So from Maine, she'd probably have to come down south. So could be. Wow. If she didn't make it, she got damn close. Tim from Maine, how many miles is it to the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> I think she zigzagged a little bit, too. Ooh. And speaking of being outside, um, there's this Tom Lehrer quote. I made a meme the other day, but um, I like it. Tom Lehrer, by the way, I used to have this record player, and we lived in the trailer. And uh, he's this guy, what what decade was he doing he was like the precursor to I, Weird Al Yankovic. I want to say the 60s, but I don't know. Yeah. I thought even earlier, but it may be at least the Maybe. 60s. But, um, yeah, he was like, he would do these parody songs, these funny songs that were uh, often really clever. But he's got this great quote that he says, bad weather always looks worse through a window. And I don't agree with that literally. I've been in some bad weather. that <laughs> it, was, it was worse than what it looked like through a window. I've like looked out a window and been like, wow, that's pretty. And then gone out there and within an hour been like, oh, shit, (laughs) I'm going back in. But I do like what he means by that, because that is often true. Um, There's also been so many times that like I'm thinking how bad it is out there or somewhere. And I do the rougher thing and it's like, oh, yeah, one step at a time. This is doable. Mm -hmm. But before I go out there, I'm looking at the whole end entirety of whatever I'm looking at and like, oh man, that looks overwhelming. Remember when it rained really, really, really hard and we were still back living in the trailer and we decided it was a warm rain. I don't remember what time of year it was, but we were going to go for a walk in it and Sherlock, our dog, worthlessly just stayed back at home. And it was his oh, dog Oh, that walk. was a hurricane rain. That was like rain I don't think I've ever been in before. It was like you thought you might drown in that rain. And there was this creek that we didn't even really know 
was a creek and it like swallowed up the road that we usually walk on. Yeah, turned into a big wide river and we walked across it. (laughs) Yeah. That was an example, I think, of, ooh, if I was inside looking out the window, I'd be like, I don't want to go in it. But but we did. And it was fun. And it was an example of touching that thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt? Yeah. Like, at first, it was hard because you're adjusting. You're like, oh, God, I'm, you know, am I crazy? Is it cold? Whatever. But then I, there's a point where you lose yourself. And that's what Chris Knight described the solitude being like. He, he would lose himself. Yeah. He was not there anymore. And there's a point where the rain starts doing something similar where like you're so busy being that you're not thinking about it so much. Yeah. You're just so there. Yeah. That, that feeling I think comes right before your mind snaps you back and, and you're saying to yourself, this is crazy. But right before that, right before your mind snaps you back. And I'm, I'm not joking. I think that's where that is. Yeah. Yeah, there's this uh, saying that this Latin saying that I uh, learned many years ago and I've, I've used it as kind of like a motto, um, you know, like on Facebook when you have to write that little or you can write that little, I don't know, the description of yourself or whatever. I put Salvatore Ambulando and it's uh, I can't remember the names of these philosophers, but they're having this debate where one philosopher is basically saying intellectually he's trying to disprove movement. And he's saying you cannot cross through a doorway or something of that nature, which, of course, seems like nonsense. But he was using his mind. Philosophy had gotten to such a degree at that point that they were having like exploring (laughs) just things completely on an intellectual level. And so the other philosopher gets up and says, Salvatore Ambulando, and walks out the door. And he says it is solved by walking. And uh, I love that. What that saying expresses to me in my life is it's all about the doing. It's okay to have theories. It's okay to think about things. But the only way they're useful is in preparing you for the action. The action is everything. The action is the show. Every part of your life where you're walking, doing, those are the parts where you're on stage. Everything else is backstage. It's rehearsal. Um, but yeah, I really like that sentiment. You know, that, that helps me get out here sometimes. And kind of guides me sometimes because it's easy to get lost out here, too, when you get some of your time back, like we've talked about, in the van and in the woods. Um, you wonder, what am I supposed to be doing? It's one thing when somebody tells you, be here at 9 o'clock, I'm going to tell you what to do. Then at 4.30, you've got the evening to yourself. You figure it out from there. And basically what you do is the minimal you need to do to feed yourself and do your chores, and then you entertain yourself with some, the easiest thing possible. Um, but out here, time you got plenty of time. It's not so easy. Nobody's telling you what to do. So when I wonder those times, Salvatore Ambulando helps me. It is solved by walking. Sometimes if I can't think of a single damn thing to do with my hands, literally I get up and walk. It almost always <laughs> helps. But to me, it's the doing. Do something with your hands. And I do think there is, of course, a, a middle ground to that where you can do, do, do <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can be, uh, somewhat more like me and not do, well, I'm not lazy. I just do stuff that's like probably not necessary. You stay busy. Some of the things like, I don't want to get it, I I (laughs) get too into it. But one of the things that we talk about a lot, sometimes argue about is when Teresa's saying like, she's struggling with something. 
What I see from the outside is a priority problem. I would never call you lazy. You're almost mm-hmm. always busy. You feel bad about not doing things. Um, but it's just that are you making time to do the things that you want to do that are going to fulfill you in life? That's the thing that I think is a, a pertinent question for all of us. Um I've heard it said there's no such thing as time. People keep waiting for somebody to give them time, to uh, have time. <laughs> I need you some make time. time. Yeah. yeah. You, you have time when you decide to have time. It's a, it's a social construct. Mm. Life is real. Time yeah. is a social construct. And I didn't mean for this to be about me, but I'm glad I got it back to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Tell us about you, Teresa. Yeah, because the things that I prioritize, I even said it a couple weeks ago, and I just, I said it, but I didn't really like walk it. Um, and that was right now, what I need to be focusing on is shelter is rewilding. I can decide to make a fancy meal at some point later on, instead of making the fancy meals now and not working on my shelter, not working on other skills. Um, and that's not to say, like you said, that there's time all the time to make that meal. But it's my priority right now, without changing, to make all these meals that are probably more difficult than they need to be versus doing the thing that will get me further away from society, further to the place where I want to be. Yeah. But I was, I was just going to conclude that thing about there must be some sort of middle way between doing all the time not doing anything but like really choosing the the juicy parts of life like do that and then take a break like do whatever that is and then take a break mhm cuz otherwise i th- i think that's what prepares you for death too yeah um this time of year as i was saying is like the hardest time of year and it being the hardest time of year i often uh more and more think about death around this time of year um this time of year being January. Yeah, end of January, I think into the beginning of February. But uh, yeah, there's something about it that like I feel death is closer. I feel like um, I often don't feel well during this time of year. Um, I have to deal with the darkness inside of me. It's been kind of like this seems to be a time of year that it rises up, you know. And I think it's interesting because I don't feel like that about the solstice, the shortest day. I feel like that about now, which is also the coldest time. It's always been interesting to me that like you would expect the shortest day to be the coldest day if you don't think about it too deeply. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you would expect kind of an equal, like similar kind of weather on both sides of it coming and going. But it's so much colder after the shortest day when the days are getting longer. And it's like that in the the morning too. Mm -hmm. You know, the coldest time of night is right before dawn. Because mm-hmm. it's the accumulation of cold. Do you know why that is? No. Now, this is just me thinking, so somebody Uh-oh. else might... Yeah, yeah. This is a theory <laughs> I had a long time ago, and it just came back to me this moment. Uh-oh. <sighs> Unedited. I think it's like the Doppler effect. So the Doppler effect with a race car is a race car comes up, you hear... So as it's coming, the sound waves are piling up, which sounds like a sound building up. And then as soon as it's past you, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sound waves are spreading out, and so that sounds like... You see that in light, too. When they use special kind of telescopes, this is how they can tell planets are... The universe is supposedly expanding, is when things are moving away from each other, they have a red shift, a red glow. When things are coming towards each other, they have a blue glow. This is the same thing as the Doppler effect. The light waves or whatever, when they spread out, look red. When they pile up, they look blue. So I think there's something similar that happens with the sun. The sun's coming, like, what am I trying to say? Are you talking about during the year, during the season, or both. during the day? I was, I was thinking oh, okay. it was both. Because both have, like, you would expect the coldest, dark part of the night to be midnight, but mm-hmm. it's not. Right, because the heat... It's is when like the dissipating. sun's actually getting close again. So it's like something's piling up in front of the sun. Oh, I see. The cold or something. Yeah. You can feel it with storms coming, too, that there's a similar kind of feeling of that Doppler effect. Because I'll feel the air getting really heavy. It's like... Man, I, I've come to think of it like the storm is pushing the air. Mm. It'll feel like, oh, God, it's getting all like thick and oppressive. And then, boom, it breaks and the storm comes. Um, but. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things that uh, I enjoyed when we had the snow was we were taking a walk and we were seeing all the tracks and one set of tracks in particular was accompanying our path. So I was noticing them and following them longer. And uh, it was this cat, this domestic cat or feral cat, I guess, um, living way down on this dirt road. Um, but its tracks were so cool. I forgot how much I liked tracking until it snowed and <laughs> I just kind of fell into it again. And, you know, like, oh, all right, here's a domestic cat and here's where he's walking and that's his baseline, a diagonal direct register. So he's comfortable. And then like seeing like where his two feet stop and it's like, Oh, he stopped. And this foot's pointed over there. He's looking over here in this bush. There was probably like a bird there. It's probably the thing most likely to be there. So at some time, damn, I should have looked and seen if I could find any evidence of the bird, huh. but just being able to read it, you know, and like notice like, well, it's not a fresh track cause it doesn't look like our tracks or Sherlock's track. So I don't know, maybe last night, um, Probably hunting for food. We keep seeing it like dive into bushes and everything. And you could just feel its expression. Like, how did it feel? Just calm. Um, but how far would you say we tracked that cat? Um, maybe. Hmm. I mean, I'd say a couple hundred feet. Yeah, it was such a nice window into its life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was. Teresa and I were talking about that, and I was saying, according to Quinn, Quinn asked the question in one of his books, maybe the story would be... Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn, yeah. Everybody that listens to our podcast should Yeah, I'm like, you know, Dairy Queen, Quinn, DQ. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) I hate it when people call him DQ. I always see Dairy Queen. Like, Dairy Queen said, what? Oh, wow. Um... But he said in one of his books, perhaps the story of B, he suggested that what's the difference between when we look back at our ancestors, we'd see an ancestor that's clearly what we'd call an animal. We'd say, that's not human. And after that, we'd see an, an ancestor that would be like, okay, that's a human. I'd call that a human. What was the thing that shifted? And Quinn suggests, and apparently there's some support for this, that was tracking. That's around the time when people began to track, and that changed everything. As far as I know, we're the only animal that that uses tracking in this way, visually, that we, it it developed abstract thought. 
We had to start thinking of things that weren't there, picturing things, using our imagination. Hmm. The better tracker was the better hunter. That person was successful. It paid off. It was the job, the big job um, to track, you know, like for security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, the abstract thinking, the storytelling to share this information, they believe language developed as a result of that. Wow. Um, so, so all of that problem solving and not just problem solving, but the problem of the mind, like the, the chitter chatter of the mind may have, uh, unintentionally just on accident happened because we made this leap from seeing something in front of us, a fox, a, a bird, you know, a duck or something to not seeing it in front of us, but our mind followed this story, this narration, and then we retold it to people and it's still not in front of us. It's like, what does Sherlock see? Sherlock sees, well, he sees like scents, um, smells, and he sees what's in front of him, but he's like totally in the moment. Mm -hmm. He's not all the time, who knows, but I don't think he's thinking of the past or the future. And yet, I mean, I agree with you for the most part. I think like that the tracking further definitely gave us uh, a heightened abstraction, mm-hmm. but I don't think dogs are absent of that. And you know why? Mm. Why? The biggest reason I have is dreams. Hmm. You Kinda see like him. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, his movements like indicate completely that he must think he's running. We can <laughs> see he's not, at least in this body. So that's got to be some kind of abstract thinking, unless we completely misunderstand completely what dreams are, Ooh. which is a possibility. I mean, maybe the only reason we're even thinking of these terms is because we don't know what a dream is. We haven't even started to think of what this thing is, is dreaming is. We're thinking it's some kind of abstract, like not quite real experience. I'm rereading the Carlos Castaneda books and they talk about <laughs> dreaming. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe another insight will come. Well, what you got next on your list? Where you want to take it in any direction you want, Teresa. <laughs> this is really random, but the other day there was some sort of picture that was, um, it had clowns, like old school clowns with like the funny colored hair. American Dad. Was it? Yeah. And I was just, I was just thinking like, oh, when people say it's clown world now, and there's all these people running around that have different hair colors. I don't know why, but for some reason it just didn't sink in until that moment that I saw clowns and I was like, oh, I get it now. I thought they were just saying that this world is so ridiculous, but it literally is just like clowns walking around. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same experience. I thought it was a metaphor and then like I saw it and it's like, oh, literally clowns are taking over the planet. Men wearing makeup, stuff like that. I mean, that's basically like, that's what clowns did. Clown world. I didn't know. (laughs) <laughs> That's all I got. That was that was everything on my list. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Clown World. Mm-hmm. That is a, a definite interesting thing. Hair dye, y'all. And uh, somebody asked us the other day, because people are always asking us questions. No, this person, it was uh, relevant to some kind of post on Facebook or something. And uh, she asked what kind of tools we have because she's... Nice segue. Yeah. I th- really? Yeah. Felt bumpy as shit, but it thank was. you. Now you made it awkward. I, I just started to think about like, oh my God, I, I was making fun of people that have hair dye and the person you're talking about uses hair dye. I oh, am shit. so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Except you. You're cool. Yeah. I always tell her she's the exception when I start talking shit about people with hair dye. I'm like, all these things I'm like describing people with hair dye, they obviously don't apply to you. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Um, 
you derailed me. Oh, tools. Yeah. So she's been like uh, noticing our shelters and stuff that we're sharing. And she's wondering like, wow, those are pretty cool. What kind of tools do you guys have? And we basically got the same tools she did. But I thought other people might have that question because we also want to share stuff we learn doing van life, not just our uh, deep philosophical musings, but uh, practical (laughs) stuff. And tools. I've got a little bucket now. If you can fit a bucket wherever you're living, I think a bucket is super helpful. You can just throw things in there, take it out. Um, like a five-gallon bucket? Five-gallon bucket or with whatever. a good handle, yeah. And you can turn it upside down for a, a stool if you need to, a quick seat a if drum. you're working on something. A drum. drum. Circle. Um, yeah, if you're – okay. <laughs> if you're going to a men's drum circle, yes. <laughs> you can carry your bucket of tools, and a men's drum circle would probably be like, oh, like Tim Allen. <laughs> Those tools you got there, man. That's a man's man. Um, but we've got a camp saw. I think a camp saw is one of the most important tools we have for bushcraft. Um, super helpful. A good sheath knife. Um, Some sort see. of hammer or mallet. Yeah. You can make one out of a branch of a tree or something, whittle it down. Yeah, yeah. Like... I've got a toolbox that I keep in the back that's mostly for van maintenance stuff, and that's got, like, some wrenches. It's got a hammer, a little hammer. Um, I've got a separate socket set. So if you're going to – if you're living out of a vehicle, socket set is huge. It's probably my most important <laughs> tool. There's so many things that need a socket set. Um, but, you know, that's mainly uh, van stuff. For bushcraft, we got the sheath knife, the, the camp saw. I've got an axe head, but I have yet to use it. I've just used it as an anvil. i got to make another handle for it, but – I think an axe is a really handy thing to have. Um, a file that I found on the side of the road, I forget what you call that kind of file, a rasp file or something. Super useful for bushcraft for keeping things sharp. Um, filing down stuff like bones, different things like that. Let's see, what else we got? Um, oh, for Christmas I got a machete, so that's been helpful. <laughs> Hack with that. I'm going to hold on to that for a while. The other day, like, you had just gotten angry with Sherlock because he did Oh, oh can I tell this? Yeah, yeah, yeah this was funny. Um, <laughs> I had, Sherlock was where he wasn't supposed to be, so I yelled at him. And I said, get! And so he was creeping around, and I threw a branch at him because he was like, sometimes, especially in his old age, I'll tell him to get. He knows he's supposed to get, and he's like, going as slow as possible. And I'm like, man, I ain't got time for this shit. So I throw a branch at him and speed him up. Like, get! And so he's really sheepish, you know. (laughs) And uh, then right after that, we're about to head down to the river, and Sherlock always comes with us there. So I wanted to let him know, you know, you're not. And we're not mad at you. Come on with us. Whatever. You're out of the yard. But you're holding. So I got my machete because I was going to hack down some trees. So <laughs> I whistled for Sherlock. I'm like, come on, boy. And he perked up and he does what he always does. Like he looked really, you know, happy and came kind of jaunting behind us. But then he just stopped all of a sudden, put his ears back and like <laughs> looked at the machete. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> Like he just stood there, like <laughs> further proof, I guess the dog's... abstract thinking. Yeah. That that oh. dog did some math in his head. <laughs> He's like, let's see, angry guy plus machete. Hmm. <laughs> Going into what? Yeah. Me no go. Calling me along. Yeah. Come on, boy. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm really excited to be working on these shelters. Um, one of the one of my deep philosophical musings the other day on shelter. Um, Gumby's deep thoughts. <laughs> As I realized, I think we misuse shelter. Um, 
I think a shelter, what it's supposed to be, is something you go into when you need to and no longer. I think if you stay in your shelter longer than you need to, it starts crossing a line into something that's more of a confinement, mm. a prison, a dungeon. Yeah. A shelter is, we're supposed to be outside. I believe that. And I think I'm understanding more about really what that means. It's when we're the most human, I think, that we're outside. Sometimes we need a shelter. The weather is not hospitable to a human. Every animal knows this. Squirrels have shelters. Every animal has places to go. So that's when we go in our shelter, you know. But as soon as we can go back outside, I think we're supposed to sit leaning against trees. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to get some sun. And then when we've had enough, sit in the shade of something. Um, It just, I don't know. I'm feeling that. What do you think when I say that? I agree. Well, Teresa, <laughs> why do you agree? <laughs> well, I was talking about that before with habitat. Like, if you're not connected, was the word I was trying to say, not attached. If you're if you're not connected to your habitat, you're connecting to something else. And that might be four walls that enclose you like a prison. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much more I could say on that, but mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you. Mm-hmm. My voice needed a break. No, thank you. And before we leave the topic of tools, I know I'm jumping around here, but I just uh, looked at my list and I'm like, oh, I don't want to forget that. Another thing that I put on my list of tools, but it's not exactly a tool, is a bag of cordage. Oh, yeah. Um, That is endlessly useful. I I think I might be forgetting something, but it's almost every damn thing I've done has involved cordage in some way. You can make cordage, but if you're... It's a, such a shortcut to scavenge it as well. I think it's really important to know how to make it, and it's fun to do. But for other things, you know, to speed you along so you can practice more more things like bushcraft and stuff that take a lot of cordage. It would take you a lot of time to make that much cordage. Um, it's everywhere. Shoelaces, landscaping twine, the plastic stuff, uh, the burlap stuff, um, any like kind of cordage. Natural horse baling twine cordage. Yeah. And I wanted to suggest some knots that I, f- I have helped me. I use all the time. So if you want to get into bushcraft, building shelters, um, just endless uses, an overhand loop knot. That's just standard. If you want to put like a little uh, eye, a little circle on the end of a string so you can hook it to something, hook it through itself, um, that's just that one that you kind of double it on itself and pull it through itself and you got a overhand loop knot. Clove hitch. Really standard. If you're going to do any kind of lashings, I start with a clove hitch, I end with a clove hitch. And if the clove hitch is like with slip, slippery cordage, another really handy knot I use all the time is a half hitch. So I just follow up the clove hitch with two more half hitches, and I rarely have that completely fail on me. That's a lot of knots and backup knots. Um, just a regular old square knot. So if you have a piece of cordage and you need to make it longer in a hurry... There might be a better knot for this, but I just learned the square knot, and it works well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the square knot is not a double knot. If you're not a knot nerd, I know this is, like, boring as crap, so I'll but just try should, to share the good, relevant— Yeah. I'm just trying to do the relevant stuff and blast through it pretty quick because yeah. you got to kind of geek out on knots. Um, My dad had a knot book, like how to tie knots, and he would bring—I guess it came with a 
piece of string. Ah, so you could practice. Oh, that's smart. Right? Yeah. He would take it on airplanes, but then, like, my mom said that they would get weird stares from passengers because, I mean, like, inevitably you're going to come across a loop that kind of looks suspicious. <laughs> and it's like this white guy doing knots on the plane. He wasn't doing any. He was just practicing knots. Wow. Hey, you remember that black uh, NASCAR driver that there was all that news media that, like, they were talking about white people were lynching black people, and the media oh, was yeah. so desperate to find stories to support this narrative that they said there was a noose hung in his garage. Yeah, yeah right. And then they said, um, no, that was that's hung in many garages. It's like a It turns out of- it was just a thing there to lift up a part of the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure a picture with a, a um, carefully crafted caption accompanied that picture. Yeah, and now you go talk to a friend, like especially somebody that's uh, more into watching the news and stuff. <laughs> ask them if they remember that story, and then ask them if they heard the other part. Yeah. See how much the news is covering yeah. the retraction. I mean, it's crazy. But anyway, back to knots. Um, I said the square knot, square lashing. Really handy if you're like, you got a horizontal pole, you need to attach it to a vertical pole. Uh, great for chairs, great for cabinets, great for shelters, all kinds of things. Square lashing. Um, you do a certain amount of wraps around to time together, over, under, over, under, and then half as many fraps, which cinches it down and ties it. You and start, it's not a Starbucks drink. Yeah, not a frappe. And then you end with a clove hitch and two half hitches. And finally, and there's other knots that are really handy as well, but I wanted to add floor lashing. So if you want to, you know, pause. I know I said that quick. Uh, take, jot down some quick, note, quick notes of these, and uh, you can learn these online really easy. So if you want to get into knots and you want to get into bushcraft, you're going to be glad you learned these knots. Floor lashing is how you tie sticks in a row. If you're making a table, you're making a table back, a uh, chair back, a chair seat, um, cabinets, a raft, a floor, uh, certain types of shelter. Again, endlessly useful. Floor lashing. So that was my housekeeping of like what we've learned this week and what tools we carry as far as the van goes. I like it. Mm-hmm. And... Fact check true. <laughs> hey, did you want to read that uh, Facebook post? Sure. While you're getting that, um... oh gosh, I don't want to get into that. Um, I guess I'll just share that. Uh... Oh, you got it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget whatever you were going to say. All right, we're trying something new here, so hopefully this works. I've got my device on, and normally Gumby writes all this stuff. Okay. A friend of mine on Facebook shared this, and it's just text. It doesn't. It's not a meme, although I don't know where the, the line is at. So it says, stolen from a friend written by a nurse. Remember that. For the conversation later. And it says, among all the vaccines I have known in my life, diphtheria, tetanus, measles, rubella, chickenpox, hepatitis, meningitis, and tuberculosis, I want to add also flu and pneumonia. I have never seen a vaccine that forced me to wear a mask and maintain my social distance, even when I'm fully vaccinated. I had never heard of a vaccine that spreads the virus even after vaccination. I had never heard of rewards, discounts, incentives to get vaccinated. I never saw discrimination for those who didn't get the vaccination. If you haven't been vaccinated, no one has tried to make you feel like a bad person. 
I have never seen a vaccine that threatens the relationship between family, colleagues, and friends. I have never seen a vaccine used to threaten livelihoods, work, or school. I have never seen a vaccine that would allow a 12-year-old to override parental consent. After all the vaccines I listed above, I have never seen a vaccine like this one, which discriminates, divides, and judges society as it is. And as the social fabric, oh, here we go, I messed up the screen. And as the social fabric tightens, it's a powerful vaccine. It does all these things except immunization. If we still need a booster dose after we are fully vaccinated, and we still need to get a negative test after we are fully vaccinated, and we still need to wear a mask after we are fully vaccinated, and still be hospitalized after we have been fully vaccinated, it will likely come to, it's time for us to admit that we've been completely deceived. Hello. <laughs> it said that after there. So I shared that. Teresa got that from Facebook from a friend. Um, and of course, there was some uh, comments that were challenging to that. One of the biggest ones was, was this written by a nurse? <clears throat> so I agree. It's kind of sketchy when you see something that just says like written by a nurse. Um, but I can also understand how, especially a nurse, you know, a nurse isn't a high ranking person with any authority or power might want to protect her identity and her job by sharing something like this because there's a, or his, yeah, my dad was actually a nurse, um, by, because we live in this cancel culture. We Mm -hmm. live in, you know, there's so many mandates coming down and everything. You might not want a comment like that out there. Um, people are getting fired for shit like that. So I don't know, but what I said is I care more about truth. I don't have a whole lot of uh, faith or admiration for people with the letters after their name. And a lot of good observations and truth comes out of even fictional characters sometimes. So what I look for is truth. I don't care so much where it comes from. I know truth or I uh, want truth when I hear it. Um (laughs) <laughs> was it written by a nurse was it written by a nurse yeah so does it matter if it was written by a nurse yeah i don't think it matters does the content of the message strike a chord with you is it something that you are also feeling Mm-hmm. and somebody asked me a really good question and said if the tables were turned let's say that people that were getting the vax were under fire um, they were sneaking into back alley places to get the vax because they wanted the protection. Um, people that were overweight, people that were old, people that just felt like they wanted that protection. Um, and the government was giving them a problem. Would I feel differently about it? Now, that was a good question. So basically questioning whether or not you're just against government or against the people's choice. Yeah, And it made me look more deeply, you know, to consider it. Because I said, for one thing, I don't think it's just let's flip the tables. It's different in this respect. The people who don't want the vax basically want to be left alone. They're not asking for anything other than let me live my life, what I had before. The people who want the vax want something new. New things do affect culture. So that would have more of an impact on everyone else. Because if they um, feed this thing by they promote it by using it um it could strengthen so you do have to pay attention to things like that that affect the culture new technologies new chemicals 
Um, if you really believe, like there's even some speculation that people with vaccines getting whatever this is jabbed into them, that could be contagious in some way by itself. Um, I don't know. But questions like that would be important. So I would probably still be against this vax. I would like have post against it. Um, I would question it. I would just feel like it's going in a wrong direction. More dependence on big farm and the government. I don't think that's good for anybody. Um, but, and here's the important part. If the government started targeting these people, saying, taking away their employment, saying they shouldn't have freedom to travel, even threatening to take their kids away, um, impeding them from going in food places, I would definitely speak up for those people. I would speak up for any group. If there was a racist group, a bunch of neo-Nazi skinheads, and the government's not allowing them free travel and everything, here's what I'd say. I'd say I think they have the right to do everything else anybody else does. What their beliefs are are their business. Now, are they hurting someone with their belief? Then handle that however the culture handles it. Did they hurt somebody? Well, that's somebody who hurt somebody. It's not about skinhead, black. Here's somebody who hurt somebody. That, to me, is the important thing. Um, but, yeah, that's where I stand on it. I would stand up for somebody's rights, even though I don't agree with the vaccine. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you feeling? You want to keep going? Um, I know we've got a, a somewhat lengthy listener write-in. I could go either way. I've got everything on my list, so we're at, like, what, an hour and coming up on an hour and a half. Okay, yeah, I just got a couple more things. One thing I learned that I thought would be uh, interesting to share because I didn't know what this was is a term that's getting thrown out, thrown around a little bit more is limited hangout. And I didn't know what that was. So here, it turns out, here's what a limited hangout is, if you hear this term. Apparently, it came from maybe 1973 when Nixon was talking to some of his staff and lawyers after the Watergate thing had spilled, and they're trying to figure out how to handle it what kind of stories they might want to leak to the media, stuff like that. That was when the term is first known to have been used, limited hangout. And basically it's if you get exposed, you have something you don't want known, it gets exposed. And so your strategy is to intentionally expose some of the truth so people will be so uh, distracted, surprised by that, that they don't even look for the thing you don't want them looking for. You protect the thing that's the real secret. So you might say, like, the CIA, <laughs> all the stuff that, that, yeah, Wikipedia, all the stuff we know about their operations. You can assume that's a limited hangout. That is, all right, with the church committee, with all this stuff going on, we're risking actual harm to the CIA. So let's release this stuff. And it is surprising enough that people be like, oh, my God, have you heard about Operation Mockingbird? Have you heard about MK Ultra? And there's probably stuff out there that they even are more hmm. not wanting known that we've never heard names for, which is chilling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a scary thought. So that's what a limited hangout is. So next time you hear that term. Is it kind of like a decoy? I'd say it's similar to a decoy in that it's a distraction, but it's different from a decoy in that the limited hangout generally isn't uh, a decoy is a fake duck. Like that's the way I picture a <laughs> fake duck, you know, decoy. Uh-huh. It's not fake. So they're saying something that is in fact true. Oh, I see. Okay. That's a good, yeah. But I would imagine like coming up with a completely fictional story is often used too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we got this drop spindle celebration thing coming up. I, uh, I keep thinking that we should try to invite people out and like connect with people more. Cause I know the importance of tribe and I know that we are, uh, not doing anything to try to, I don't know, everybody says build one or whatever, um, to remedy that. And yet I will like come up with an event and think like, Oh, we'll have people out. And I'm just reminded, I don't like people. <laughs> Yeah, so like I'll I'll like make the first few steps and then I just will day after day like not put any more energy into it cuz it's like at each day when I ask myself do I want to it's like eh. So, yeah, that's a that's a dilemma. Like I say, you know, if you've got a tribe, value them. If you can make a tribe work, do it. If you can't, I I absolutely think it's a disadvantage, a big disadvantage. So, um, the way I look at it is this. If you can't find a tribe, do the best you can. Just um, suck it up and learn what you can and go at it alone. If you happen to find a tribe somewhere along the way, think how much you're going to have to offer mm. because of you sucking it up and doing what you can on your own. Um, people keep saying like, oh, you can't do this without a tribe. You can't do that without a tribe. To which I reply, if you get dropped in the middle of a lake without a boat... You don't just like stay out there bitching and complaining and wasting all your energy about how you don't have a boat. You swim. <laughs> so that's what I feel like we're doing. We're swimming. Wow. All right. I think I'm ready if you got that uh, listener right in. I think we said all the important stuff. If we haven't enlightened anybody this week, well, there's just no hope for you. You're going to have to uh, – I don't know what people do to get enlightened nowadays. Okay. Whew. All right. This is a, this is a long one. That's what she said. Well, thank you, Teresa. <laughs> and this is from our good friend Kristen from Orlando, Florida, one of the states fighting to be free. Um, Kristen what? has shown us a lot of kindness. We, when we were on our way to Florida last winter, um, Kristen was willing to like drive up the coast and like meet us in a town in Florida when we got there and have lunch with us. Um, we had to turn around, so we never had that lunch. Yeah. Um, and Kristen has sent us, like, notebooks to use. She's given us a donation. Um, oh, my God. Those notebooks must have cost, like, a f- small fortune to ship. Yeah. And she's just a really cool Thank person. You. She works in the medical field, so she's also, like, my uh, um, go-to person when I want medical advice of, like, well, what are you seeing? You actually work in the medical field. Um, but she sent us this really detailed message, and... uh I don't even know what the hell an accent from Florida would be, but I'm, I'm just going to skip it because the message is really long. I think I'd kill myself. Confidence. Yeah. Everybody from Florida seems to be fairly confident. It's like they're so far south that the south, southern accent doesn't really apply anymore. Yeah. They've like, they're into something else. And they've got so much abundant sunshine and warmth. It's just like good for them. Yeah. Damn healthy people. Damn. Can't stand them. All right. And she jogs. Ugh, marathons and stuff. All right. Um, Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Here's my response to the Facebook post. I don't remember which post that was. Um, My take on the metaverse, something I wrote recently for myself. I hear holograms will be part of it. Transport yourself to a meeting or a concert without physically leaving your home. Confirmed in Zuckerberg's video. With this tech, your body's image would need to be imprinted somewhere. I bet it would become immediately possible for someone to use that imprint to impersonate you and to make it look like your hologram was someplace where you never sent it. 
This has already been done before. For example, Tupac at the Coachella Music Festival. Also, could someone re-simulate <clears throat> the hologram to show your actual self in compromising positions that you never made while hallowing, using it as deep faking? Concept already exists. Blackmail or setting you up for a crime you never committed. We don't use the word blackmail anymore. Mailing of color. <laughs> I have these doubts based on how I already see people using cyber technology. It is already, today, too much to our detriment. The price to pay is the human spirit. Mm. I totally agree with that. We are definitely trading. This is me talking, not Teresa. I mean, not Kristen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, that's my view, is that we are trading our humanity for convenience. I feel like we're becoming more machine-like. That's kind of collectivism, you know, as we talked about. Everything's becoming more collectivist, where we're like machine parts. The Borg. The Borg. Next up, virtual reality. This is Kristen again. VR, or augmented reality, AR in general. Won't this just lead to companies selling ways to make the world around you appear more wonderful and glorious? I think that's the direction this is headed in. Hallucinogenic goggles that play on the psyche in ways more powerful than ever, available to every home. Another route of escapism. Another way to become addicted, dependent. This will certainly play on the brain chemistry of many, with the most vulnerable being those who already see the world as drab and bleak, or at least boring, teens. And also scientists. <laughs> yeah. People will put these on their children, their babies, the early versions of us who are born knowing the wonder of real existence, but can be so easily influenced to believe it's not all that it's chalked up to be. So, after all this time trying to teach the dangers of addictive substances, we're going to blatantly offer one to slip over your eyes? <laughs> screens, as we have them are, screens as we have them are already addictive, but not immersive, at least not in the mainstream yet. This is going to be on another level. I'm still working on this point, but if there's a silver lining to the metaverse, it's that it could be the ticket many of us have been waiting for to really act on escaping society and reclaiming our humanity with complete abandon. When the metaverse is firmly in place, mainstream in five to ten years from now, as Zuckerberg puts it, there could be a split between people, those who spend a great deal of their time in VR, AR, and neglect their physical reality, and those who don't. Of course, those who don't could fall into several categories, but I'll highlight two. Those who resist encroachment of this tech altogether, and those who simply help to maintain physical reality and may or may not resist the encroachment, custodians, builders, plumbers, arborists, anything blue-collar. Perhaps this group will grow if number grow in number if there are enough white-collar workers who do not want to work in the metaverse, because it will become part of any desk job. Mm. That would be to our benefit. Our, meaning those of us likely to not participate in this tech altogether, and to resist its inevitable encroachment. For the reasons listed above, the addicted cybertech users may become oblivious to those of us planning an abandonment of their desires. They will be too busy in the metaverse to see that some of us some of us are splitting off and living elsewhere, living illegally in some ways, as much alternative living is, or they will be too immersed to maintain their physical surroundings and grow even weaker and unhealthier, thereby allowing us to be stronger and healthier. A plausible opinion in that... A plausible their, option. A plausible option is that, in their immersion, they do not see the people actively engaged in the dismantling of the metaverse. I see that the metaverse will offer a huge vulnerability and its own ubiquitous presence, because that will mean the physical tech must be placed everywhere, and therefore will lend itself to easier destruction, or at least disruption of its services. Ooh. 
Or perhaps this will be foreseen by its creators, and so Chinese-scale video surveillance will go up in this country, and resistors will be systematically found and impounded. But for how long can something like this sustain with real physical resources extracted by people outside of the metaverse? Either way, I do not believe this will be able to sustain for very long, and it could accelerate the fall of this culture as we know it, and those of us waiting for this can move through it and then move on. Thanks again for listening. I'm all ears. You too. Kristen. Um, yeah, what do you think as I read that? You hadn't uh, encountered, the, I, you hadn't read that before, right? Mm-mm. No, and um, I agree with a lot of the things that she's that Kristen's bringing up um, from there might be a, a split, a, a schism from, for our species. Soraya Rose from uh, maybe Northwest Territories, Canada, somewhere up in Canada. She shared um, with me that there's a prophecy called the Eagle and Condor prophecy that kind of is talking about this very thing. There's going to be a division in the people that the people that want to live with the earth are going to separate from the people who want to become basically machines. So yeah, I agree with a lot of her uh, her views on what the dangers of this are. Um, you know, John Zerzan has talked a lot about the dangers of simulation, and uh, this is going to be such a new gear for simulation. It's just blatant. We're not just toying with it anymore. We're like, it's going to take over. This is the takeover of simulation if this happens, and I've got no reason to think it won't. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm somewhat pessimistic about it because I think I don't think Teresa and I consider the possibility. What if everybody's inside all the time? Would that leave the outside basically to the people who want to be outside? Would these people kind of be left to just for their freedom because the government, the corporations, and everything are really invested in the people who are doing that? I would tend to think that wild people, wild people have always frightened this culture. They, our culture, one of the bottom rules, I feel like, is if you can do something about it, do not let an alternative exist to this culture. We want everybody. Mm-hmm. If there's an alternative, there's always a danger that the alternative may attract people. Because I think... Our culture is insecure. I think our culture knows, you know, and I know, like, what do I mean by knowing? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Just all together, kind of a, what am I trying to say? A collective presence. But I think our culture is somewhat aware that it is superficial and empty promise and doesn't really have anything to offer. So I think our culture is insecure about that. Mm. And I think it's true. It's a valid observation. So for that reason, I think they would probably have things like drones. They would use some of the technology they're developing to control these people, if not outright eradicate them. I think the first plan would be to do everything you can to push them in. And the the government's really good at that. You know, you might need to like, oh, the only way to pay the taxes on this, you want a little plot of land just to live off grid? Well, turns out, I'm sorry, you've got to pay taxes to the government. And the only way to do that is, I mean, we don't have physical offices anymore. Do you realize how environmentally friendly that is? You have to get on the technology. And uh, once you get on that technology, I mean, who knows what they're doing with radio waves and stuff. It might, you might not even need to get on the technology. I might be talking like in Stone Age terms, according to like the CIA. They might just be able to like, I mean, radio waves go everywhere. 
Well, supposedly, I, I didn't read the article, but something about um, Neuralink, the chips that Elon Musk has been uh, working on to embed in human brains. Uh, I, I think the article was saying that that is slated to happen this year, 2022. Yeah. I mean, it's happening. It's always been like, oh, this could happen. What would you do? This is it. You're doing what you would do right now. This is what you would do when they start putting microchips in people. That old question that people used to like, you know, poke each other with. It's happening. And let this be a reminder too, like we've been saying for the last, I don't know how many episodes, don't wait to learn skills. If you want to learn skills, do it now. Yeah. If you think you're just going to stubbornly say, I won't do it. And that's going to be enough. You have no idea of the strategies that they have used, are using, and will use. They can be extremely coercive. If you really think you're going to avoid where the culture's going, you've got to really want it. You've got to be investing yourself in some things that will actually give you the freedom that you're hoping you have. And I know a whole lot of people out there that fall into the, I think I'm going to stubbornly say, I ain't going to do it. And they got nothing to back it up. And those people are, they're in trouble. They're in for a surprise. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Be working on what you can now. You know, I keep encouraging people. I think you, everybody should be working on some kind of skill. And that could be anything. It could be sitting in your home watching your favorite movie knitting. Any kind of skill, as long as you're moving in that direction of autonomy, is helpful. So don't focus on what you can't do. Oh, I can't hunt buffalo anymore, so I guess I won't be building that teepee out on the plane. I just can't do it. Focus on what you can do. Can you have a night where you learn how to make a little lamp? with just some cordage and like some oil, some pine pitch, something. Um, have a night that you light your, wherever you're at, just with a little lamp. Catch rainwater once a week, when, whenever it rains, catch rainwater. Any of those tiny little easy skills will be movement and it can build momentum in the direction of freedom. And all the learning and failing that can happen now versus when it's life or death situation. Yeah, it's like what I tell kids, get your mistakes out of the way. What you're out here for with me when I have kids um, that I'm teaching is to get some mistakes out of the way. Sometimes you'll stumble upon a success, but the mistakes are things you've got to go through to get this to the success. They're the cost of the success. So that's what I would, ah, ooh, my hand fell asleep and cramped. That's what I would encourage everybody to do is get some mistakes out of the way because there's a lot of mistakes in front of you. Whoever you are, there's a lot of mistakes in front of you. Um, and just don't wait. Just, I mean, get it into your head right now. This is kind of the, I don't want to say the end times. Like This, this is, is the end. We don't have a lot of elders anymore that can teach us in person. We have YouTube. And if I am saying, you know, I've got this list of skills that I want to work on, I know I, I keep saying this, and I'm slowly, slowly getting there, um, sometimes too slowly, but don't be me. Get on there. <laughs> get on YouTube or get a book or find somebody that will teach you in person and do it now. Yeah, if you have access to YouTube, YouTube can teach you a lot. I know. I don't want to be learning from YouTube either, but it's what we got. And it turns out that there's a lot of people out there that at least for now, and who knows how long, but at least for now, they're sharing a lot of videos that will get you started on some really great skills. Use it. Um, 
So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say about that. Mm-hmm. Anything else about Kristen's comment about virtual reality or? Um, like just that she... I think that they, my hope, here's my hope. I think that they will try to control the people that don't want to get in the technology um, because they will make it so necessary to have to use their technology that if you're still not using it, I mean, they're already paving the way with like getting a, getting us used to ideas like domestic terrorist. Mm-hmm. Think of how people that are have embraced the technology, accepted it, normalized it, are going to see this person living out there doing whatever they have to to not need that technology. That person will easily be seen as a crazy, scary domestic terrorist. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic. Here's where I'm optimistic. I don't think this can go much longer. I'm hoping it can't. I hope that they have overreach. I hope that they are just ignoring how big their problems are and that this, even though it seems like they're trying to push us into another gear, is also the beginning of the end. Um, That's where my hope lies. And also my hope lies that I've just got my life, whatever it is. Right now, my hope lies in today. Right now, there's sunshine, there's clouds, there's green leaves. Um... That's all I've got. So maybe tomorrow there are going to be green leaves and sunshine and clouds. And if I try to live the way that I think I should, I think I'm going to have a good life. It's really the best I can do. So that's where my hope lies in my todays. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have not subscribed to our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Um, <laughs> and make sure you escape society. Yes. And escape society. Um <laughs> And we have a Facebook page under Found at Escaping Society. We have a website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in what? Boobies. Boobies. (laughs) How come I didn't think of that? Dot com. Um, Give us a review, please, if you think we deserve five stars. If you've learned anything, been challenged or entertained, um, hit the five-star button. It'll help get our podcast out there more. Um, At our website that I just mentioned, um, I know you probably forgot it because we said boobies. My brain goes blank on that word, too. www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. There is a donate button, so if you feel moved or able, we always appreciate a cash donation or whatever currency donation um got a youtube channel haven't added to it in quite some time and what am i forgetting donate button i said the donate button that's all i don't know and please uh if you want to send us a message we really like questions and comments and all that good stuff but uh i think that's it pretty much all right that's pretty much it bye And we don't need it It's killing your kids So why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay But you don't need to heed it You can give them the finger There's no time to linger Soul
thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.